First Peter is where we're at. First Peter chapter three, verse eighteen through twenty-two, and God is about to speak to you this morning. I I hope. So therefore, how can you be bored, right? First Peter chapter three, verse eighteen. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, you can easily find First Peter just looking at the table of contents in the front of the book. It'll give, it'll give you the page number. First Peter is in the back. Starting with verse 18, please follow along in your Bible as I read it from mine. I'm reading from the ESV translation. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in a few, in which a few, that is eight persons, were being saved through water, brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience." Through the, right, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we ask that You do give us the grace to understand Your words this morning. This actually in many ways is a, is a difficult passage Yet at the same time, Your Word speaks clearly to us. And I pray that You will powerfully open this up so that we might benefit from it, so that we might grow, and so that we might see Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. In 1844, Karl Marx wrote a phrase that has been famously paraphrased in this way, religion is the opium of the people. Now what he's saying there essentially is if people are convinced of the illusion of happiness, then they're not going to cry out and demand actual happiness. So then therefore, thinking along the lines of social problems, therefore then people could be oppressed because they have the illusion of happiness which religion creates and they won't demand the actual happiness. Now, my intent this morning isn't to give an interpretation on Karl Marx's work. You can read Karl Marx on your own time. However, I do want to point out this one thing. Karl Marx, along with many others, have believed that the only real hope that religion provides is the hope of a painkiller. Like hospice care. An old man goes into hospice care and receives the morphine basically to take away the pain until he dies. We're going to give give him the illusion of happiness, the illusion of not having pain. But the reality is, is that the pain is still there. It's just numbed. Now, as I've been reading this text this week, this is the Word of God. This is what I believe. It's the Word of God. And as I've been reading it, God, I believe, has spoken to me through these words. And I hope that He speaks to you in the same way today. And here's the hope that I have found in this text this morning, and that is this. That 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, our religion, Christ, is a lot more than just opium. A lot more than just a painkiller to get us through the suffering of life. But rather, through Christ, we actually have victory over suffering. That's what we're going to look at today. So if you would, I've got nothing else to say other than what's in the Bible. So we're not going to talk about Karl Marx anymore. We're going to go to the Word. Let's start. What we see first here is that victory has been indeed accomplished. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered, he says. Let's just stop right there. For Christ also suffered. One of the core doctrines of our faith, we see this in Hebrews, is that Jesus is a high priest who can sympathize with us. Jesus is the God who has been there. For Christ, he says, also suffered. Ravi Zacharias, he tells a story of Eli uh, uh, Wiesel, who is a writer. He's a uh, uh, Jew who survived the Holocaust and has written about it. And Wiesel writes about a time when he was in a concentration camp, and he, along with a few others, were forced to witness the hanging of a few other Jews. And there were two men and one boy that were going to be hanged that day, and they went and they witnessed this. The two men died immediately, and the boy did not. And he hang, as he hung there, he struggled with the rope against his neck. He, his body twisted, and he hung there for 30 minutes. While he was hanging there, one of the other witnesses with Wiesel said, Where is God? It began with just a mutter, and Wiesel heard it. Where is God? That question grew. Where is God? Wiesel said it continued to grow until he began to think that same question. Where is God as this boy is struggling? In the midst of this suffering, where is God? And Bissell said it was as if the, question, or the answer just came to him. And it was this, God is hanging there on the gallows. You see, here's the message of Christianity. We don't find Jesus in the riches of life. We don't find Jesus in the prosperity of life. We find Jesus in the suffering of life. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most magnificent story that has ever been told. It is so magnificent that unbelievers are dumbfounded by it. God suffered. Christ also suffered. This is the the effect that Peter wants his readers to have as they too are about to go through some excruciating suffering. So this is why he says it in this way. Christ also suffered. This is the God who can sympathize with us as we are suffering. And this is the way that God wants you to hear this today as you may be currently or may soon will face suffering. Christ also suffered. He's found there in the suffering, but not only can Christ sympathize with us. If we stop there, then Christ is a really great martyr He can sympathize with us, but that's about it. But here's the next piece uh, that's important to note. The suffering of Christ actually did something. 
So it's not just simply a sympathetic kind of suffering, like I've been there. But his suffering actually did something about your suffering. So let's go on and let's look at it. Verse 18, he goes on, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Why is the world the way it is? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Ravi Zacharias said, said it simply this way. He said, the reason we harm each other is because we sin. You see, dealing with sin is not like a side item uh, to our religion, to our faith. Dealing with sin is not just an additional benefit of the cross. Often we think about the problem of suffering, then over here we think about the problem of sin, right? We separate these two. Here's the reality when we talk about suffering. How does Christ give us victory through suffering? Dealing with sin is the way to give us victory through suffering. Amen? Amen. Sin is at the very root of our problem. So how does He do it? Well, the language here is a clear allusion to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that the priest was to daily and then annually take a lamb and slaughter it, put his, place his hand on the head of it prior to death, symbolically transferring the guilt of himself as well as the guilt of the people to this lamb, and then he would slice the throat, and this would become what is called a sin offering. Now, this would be repeated year after year after year after year. This was repeated. Why? Well, because the lamb wasn't actually doing anything. It symbolized a substitution. The sin that, that the people have committed, the, the penalty for this sin is what? Somebody? Death. Death. Thank you, biblical scholars. Through Adam, all sin, because of sin, we have death. The guilt for sin is placed on the lamb. Now what comes to the lamb? Slicing the throat. Thank you. Death. There is a substitution of the guilt, and there is a substitution of the penalty for sin that goes onto the lamb. It was repeated year after year after year. Hebrews chapter 9 said this simply about Jesus. He said, Jesus suffered once for sins. Same thing First Peter is saying right here. He suffered once. Why? Why only one time? Because this lamb was the sacrifice. Not just a symbol, uh, not just a symbol of, of someone who dies and then rises. No, he was the substitutionary sacrifice for sin in which the guilt of God's people was placed upon this lamb, and when he died, he bore the penalty for our sin, and that penalty is death. The righteous, he says, died for the unrighteous. The righteous was substituted for the unrighteous. Now let's, let's apply this in a couple different ways. How can, a, how can a spouse forgive his 
or her unrepentant spouse after they have had an affair? How is that possible? How is it possible to forgive in this kind of way and to not hold retribution against them? How is this possible? Here's how. It's because Christ bore the punishment for that sin. The righteous died for the adulterer. You see? The righteous died and took the penalty for this sin. How is it possible that a... uh, a young man or a young woman who has uh, had uh, hooked up with more people than they can count and imagine ever feel worthy of something like marriage. Here's how. It's because Christ died for sin. The righteous died for the unrighteous. He took the guilt for sin. He took the stains of that sin and removed them from the sinner as far as the east is from the west. The righteous died for the unrighteous. The lamb was substituted in our place. Now, this doctrine is called substitutionary atonement. And it stands at the very heart of the gospel. The very center of the gospel says that the righteous took the punishment and stood in the place of the unrighteous. Now, because this doctrine is at the very heart of the gospel, it makes sense why there is such an attack on this doctrine today. Because if Satan can convince us that Jesus' death had nothing to do with a substitution for sinners, then he has effectively removed the very core of the gospel, and the gospel has been significantly harmed. Because of this doctrine, sin is destroyed. Because of this doctrine, there is no penalty for sin for those that are in Christ. We had a uh, panel this last week on race, which some of you came to. It was a wonderful panel. And one of the questions that, that Jen asked the panelists was, through the Christian worldview, or how does the Christian worldview answer the problem of racism? And I said, the, the, the cross stands at the center of the Christian worldview. And every Christian believes that they are a sinner. That they have sinned against God. And that because of that, they deserve death. Yet there is the cross. And Christ stood in our place, took what we deserved, took our death upon Him. And every one of us from all ethnicities and all languages and all countries and all races come together at the same cross and it's a leveling ground. How can any of us then fall on our knees before the cross and hold racism in our hearts? You see the effect that this doctrine has on us. The righteous suffered, he says, for the unrighteous. Now let's go on with the effect here. It brings us that He might bring us to God. Alright, so so you might be praying that that Christ would bring you to a job. You might be praying that Christ would bring you to a spouse. You might be praying that Christ would bring you to healing. You might be praying that Christ would bring you to all sorts of good things. 
But here what we see is that Christ at the core brings us to God. And then you say, no, I would rather Christ bring me to a job, all right? Or I would rather Christ bring me to whatever I'm looking at right now, whatever I, whatever I want. No, wait a second. Christ brought you to God. Is that not enough, first of all? The death of Christ has effectively brought you to God. Now, how can we then uh, have fear of man? How can we then go to work and be so concerned with what people think of us? Or be so concerned with what your neighbor thinks of you or your professor thinks of you? How can we be crippled by the fear of man when the work of Christ has brought us relationally to the throne room of God and we have been embraced by Him as His very own Son? Alright, let's go on. The next three verses... Or I should say this, because of the next three verses, theologian Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. He said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Well, it's too bad Luther's not here today. (laughs) So he could help us. The next three verses are indeed very strange. However, the the main thing is the clear thing. That's one thing I learned in college. And we see something very clear here in the next three verses. The first thing is this. While victory is accomplished, victory is proclaimed. Look at verse 19. Put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, let's just take a minute here. What are these, or who are these spirits in prison? This is where a lot of the controversy begins to happen here, all right? Edmund Clowney summarizes the top three interpretations of who these spirits are. I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, some people think that they are the dead in hell, and that Jesus, between Good Friday and Easter, went to hell and proclaimed uh, to the dead in hell. Number two, they could be the fallen angels who came to the daughters of man in Genesis 6, just prior to the flood, and through Jesus' resurrection, his resurrection proclaims victory over the fallen angels. Or number three, it could be referring to the message that Noah preached, uh, that, that the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah to the disobedient humans of his day, and they denied Noah, and therefore they denied their only hope, and that was Christ. What is the correct view? Let's move on. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I'll give you a thought here. If you want to read, I'm not, there's, there's some complicated stuff here. There's some compli- complicated, complicated, I can even speak, linguistic issues. Um, Karen Jobes is really good on this. If you want to study this more, Edmund Clowney is very good on this as well, if you want to study this more. But I don't think it's the first one. I don't think it has anything to do with Jesus going to hell. There's no sense in the word here that Jesus descended. That's, there, actually, the word here is the same word that's used in verse 22 of Christ's ascension. So if anything, his going is a going upward, not a downward. 
Um, and so I don't think that it refers to Jesus preaching to everybody in hell, uh, partly too because of the context. So we, what you see here is that this issue of Noah and the flood comes directly after this proclaiming to the spirits in prison. And so that should then inform who the spirits are. And so either the second view or the third view is probably correct. And so that is either it's the fallen angels. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, they came and these, these demons uh, had relations with humans and they produced what were called the Nephilim. And this led directly to the flood. So it's very likely then that Jesus, through his, or through his resurrection, is proclaiming his power over the demonic world. That's very likely. The third one, which is where I'm leaning, is that Jesus preached through Noah. That the Spirit of Christ, we see this in actually 2 Peter chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 or 3. You have to double check that later. Uh, Noah preached, he says, it says righteousness there in 2 Peter. And so Noah was actually preaching the righteousness of God. So it's very likely then that the Spirit of Christ is preaching through Noah, and this is referring then to those, and we see this in the next verse, who disobeyed in Noah's time, to those who had the opportunity to repent of their sins, to those who had the opportunity possibly to get on the ark before the rain came, and they disobeyed Noah, and then therefore they disobeyed Christ, and so then therefore they disobeyed God. Either way, what we see is clear is this, and you can take any of those positions, that's fine with me. What's clear is that Jesus proclaimed his power over demons, angels, mockers, scoffers, over everyone that is against him through his death and through his resurrection. Now, in the same way, today Jesus is proclaiming to you. Look at verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now Peter is using the old Noah story of which his readers would have been familiar to make an appeal and a proclamation for his readers today that there is a judgment that is coming. There is an ark in Christ that has been prepared. And the door for this ark is wide open right now. Thinking of the Noah story and connecting it with us today, Wayne Grudem has a number of implications for us. Let me read them to you. Number one, Noah was surrounded by hostile unbelievers, and we too today are surrounded by hostile unbelievers. Number two, Noah remained righteous, and we too must remain righteous in the face of of persecution. Number three, Noah witnessed boldly. And we too are called to witness boldly in a world that looks at us and says, this is ridiculous. You're building a ship. It hasn't even rained. We must be bold. Number four, Noah realized that judgment was pending. And we too, friends, must realize that judgment is pending. In Noah's day, they experienced the true, literal judgment of God through the flood that came down on us, and we must recognize that the floods of God's wrath are imminent. God, number five, waited patiently in the days of Noah. He waited patiently with wicked sinners in the days of Noah. Now, family, the door of, of the ark was wide open. The scoffers and the mockers could have repented and got on the boat. 
But when the door is closed and the rain begins to come, friends, it is too late. Now look, I'm not trying to be a turn or burn kind of preacher. But here is the reality that we can't get around. The judgment of God is imminent. I know we don't see the storm clouds yet. But when the rain begins, it's too late to get in the boat. The door of Christ is wide open and Christ is beckoning all. Come. Come into me. Find rest. Find hope. And find salvation. And I'm pleading with you now, those of you who are against Christ, to turn from your wicked ways and come into Christ so that you might find salvation. Because the judgment is indeed imminent. Now the sobering reality in what we see here in the verse is that there were only eight that were saved. Noah and seven others were saved. Friends, will you be in that number? We see the victory is accomplished. We see the victory is proclaimed. And next we see that the victory is displayed. How is the victory displayed? It is displayed through baptism. Look at verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now what does this mean? Does this mean that baptism actually saves us, like effectively cleanses us of our sins? Some denominations actually like this passage because they believe that it teaches what's called baptismal regeneration, the idea that actually going under the water in some way effectively cleanses you of your sins. Is that what this is saying? The answer is absolutely not. It's impossible because that would actually disagree with the rest of the Bible. All right, so what is this saying, and how do we understand what this means? Baptism saves you. Well, there are some complex Greek issues here. Very complex. My professor interacted with me on Facebook and helped me see some things that I was having trouble with. Here's one possible way we can understand this. All right, just bear with me for a brief moment. I promise I won't bore you too much. What is the subject for the verb saves you? It could be baptism, as in baptism saves you. Or, just as likely, it could be the pronoun which is translated here, which, which could be translated who, which could refer to then, not baptism, but Christ in verse 18. Connecting this back with verse 18. Sort of one stream of of thought. So it could be translated in this way. Christ, verse 18, okay, then coming down to verse 21, who saves you, baptism being the antitype of the flood, not washing away sin, but appealing to God. All right? That's one way to, uh, to understand how this, what this could mean, what, how this could be translated. However, it's actually quite easy. All right? So don't think that you need to learn Greek to be a good Christian. Uh, actually, Peter himself qualifies in the text, in the verse, what he means. Look at it. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. Okay, what's the subject of saves? We can leave that up for debate. But he clarifies, he qualifies this. He says, not, in a, or not as a removal of dirt from the body. Now, that literally means 
not as a removal of filth from the flesh. And I don't believe in context here that Peter is referring to literal dirt that's on your body, but rather he's, repeat, he's, he's referring to the, the filth and the flesh in the way that he uses it in the context of his letter, referring to the moral filth of sin in your flesh. So he's saying not as the baptism has nothing to do with the washing away of sin. Baptism has nothing to do with the removal of the filth from your flesh, but rather it is an appeal to God for a clean conscience and for a lifestyle that follows after that conscience. It's an appeal to God. We are set apart not by the action, but by what the action symbolizes, and that is our faith. That we plead with God, please save us. Cleanse me of sin. We make an appeal to God. Baptism then is saying with the whole body that we trust that we are saved. And then he said it, it corresponds with the flood. So there's a connection here with the flood and with baptism. In the flood, or I'm sorry, in baptism, we go under the water, don't we? In the same way, the water represents then the judgment of God. That we go under the judgment of God symbolically, yet we don't stay there. At least if I've baptized you, I've never held you there for longer than a second. Because as soon as you are under, you come out victoriously. This is what it symbolizes. Under the waters of judgment, and then out of the waters of judgment, united then symbolically with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 6 3 and 4 says, if we are baptized then into his death, then we are also raised to walk in the newness of life. Meaning, as we come out of the waters, there is this appeal to God. It is a decision, it is a pleading with God, let me walk now in a way that makes sense of what I have just pictured here. Let me walk in a way that demonstrates the newness of of life. Now, I'm not one to read a long quote, but I'm going to read you this one. Russell Moore said it better than I can. Baptism, he said, is not merely an initiation into Christianity. It is not, an, it is not accidental that baptism is not uh, with, or, uh, I'm sorry, got to start over. This is why I don't typically read. It is not accidental that baptism is done with water, the element of the wrath of God in the flood judgment of the world. It signifies the burial of the believer with Jesus in the chaotic waters of death and the resurrection of the believer with Jesus from the grips of the grave. As such, baptism is a call to battle. When believers from every nation uh, go down into the waters, they appeal to God for rescue from the condemnation of the angels, authorities, and powers which have been swept away by the resurrection triumph of the warrior Messiah. And this leads us to our final point in verse 22, that, that victory here is applied. Look at it. He, he says, who has gone into heaven, referring to Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We see three stages of redemption here. First, we see the death of Christ. We see the resurrection of Christ, but it's not yet complete, is it? Until Christ ascends. We often forget that part, don't we? 
Why isn't Christ here with us still today? It's because Christ had to ascend to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is this important? Because the Christ who can identify with you is now seated at the right hand of God. Because the Christ who is your substitute is now seated at the right hand of God. Because the Christ who has brought you salvation is now seated at the right hand of God. Because the Christ who suffered is now seated at the right hand of God. What does this mean? It means that, that through Christ, that Christ has ultimate authority over everything. Christ has ultimate authority over every ruler and over every principality and over every power. It means that the one who's sitting at the right hand of God intercedes for us when we cry. It means that the one who's sitting at the right hand of God is the one who hung on the gallows, if you would, and who can identify with our suffering. It means that we have a place now to set our minds on things that are above, not on things in this world. It means that everything is subject to Him. It means that every enemy that Christ has and every true enemy that you have, emphasis on true, is placed under subjection to Christ. Every fallen angel that wreaks havoc in your life has been subjected to Christ. Every authority, and I think of in this context here, Nero, all right, the emperor that's about to wreak havoc in their lives physically. Every authority and every unjust ruler in your life has been placed under subjection to Christ. Every power on earth and every power in heaven has been placed under subjection to Christ. It means the 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 is true, which says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after, after he has destroyed all dominions, authority, and power. It means that Romans 8.38 is true, which reads, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. Every enemy, every enemy has been then placed under subjection to Jesus Christ. The wicked in Noah's day, the mockers and the scoffers. Those who persecute Christians today have been placed under subjection to Christ. The unjust who take advantage of those in their communities and, and children starve on less than a dollar a day have been placed under subjection to Christ. The evil which placed that little boy on the gallows has been placed under subjection the subjection of Jesus Christ. All sickness, gen, cancer, placed under subjection to Jesus Christ. AIDS has been placed under the subjection of Jesus Christ. Every terror, ISIS, has been placed under the subjection of Jesus Christ. Every angel and authority and power has been defeated by Jesus. So, how does Jesus get us through suffering? 
Is he just our painkiller? Just to kill the pain so we can make it through until the end? No, he's much more than that, isn't he? This is how Jesus gets us through suffering. First, he has identified with us in suffering. The very thing that has brought you suffering, sin and death, is the thing that was placed onto Christ. It killed him, and then he rose again from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Here is how Christ gets us through suffering. He is standing on the other side of it. He's been through it. And there he is. And it hasn't harmed him. And Jesus is looking at you and he is saying, come to me all who are weary and all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So do not fear. Do not be troubled. God is not mocked. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go into this scripture in First Peter. We thank you for preserving this letter for us. We thank you for the power that you, uh, that, that you speak into our lives through these ancient words as they come alive in our hearts as Jesus Christ powerfully moves in our midst, we pray that we would indeed look to Christ, that we would see him on the other side of suffering, and that we would go to him there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.